With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Hello and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm Clinton Wilcox, your host, and I'm joined by my co-host, Nathan Apodaca. How are you doing today, Nathan? Good, Clinton. A little spaced out with the eclipse going on. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure most of America is uh, is pretty spaced out. I, I hear that the eclipse is out of this world. Yeah, um, it's a revolutionary thing. Right. And so we have the eclipse today, but uh, The Defenders is also on Netflix. And so I, I don't ordinarily binge watch shows on Netflix, but I, I actually enjoyed The Defenders so much that, that I managed to watch the whole thing in, in the span of a couple of days. Mm, not bad. I'm not sure people, uh, pro-life apologists, uh, normally talk about Marvel TV shows, but hey, there's a first time for everything. <laughs> right. Now, um, we're advocates and voices for the unborn with Life Training Institute whose mission is to equip pro-life advocates to graciously and persuasively defend their pro-life views in the marketplace of ideas and in our culture. We believe in the radical idea that it's wrong to kill innocent human beings, whether born or unborn, and we're here to equip you to defend that idea in a culture that celebrates a woman's right to choose. Now, as Nathan did mention, there's a solar eclipse going on today, at least today as of the day that we're recording. When this episode actually airs, it will be uh, several days later, but... Yeah, hopefully you're you're out there enjoying the solar eclipse. Remember not to uh, stare directly at the sun, even though I guess this uh, bit of advice will be late, considering it's not going to air until Sunday. But I hope you were able to get a good um, you know a good view at it if you had your glasses, if you're in the path of totality. Unfortunately, we are not. We only get about seventy three percent coverage of the sun where where I'm at. I'm not sure about where Nathan's at in San Diego, but yeah, so we're it's not actually fifty percent down here. Oh, is it? Okay, yeah, that's, that's kind of weird because, you know, being in the same state, but I guess California is a pretty big state, especially as you move north to south, so, yeah, we get about 73% coverage up here. So the topic that we have for today is how to construct an argument, and it's actually fitting that we're covering this topic this week because I'm starting my classes this week. In fact, I, I start a class tomorrow and Thursday. I'm teaching two classes of students on Intro to Logic. As entire classes are taught on logic, this is not going to be an exhaustive discussion of these topics. For that, I would recommend finding a logic textbook such as Peter Crave's fine book, Socratic Logic, or 
attend a logic class. As I mentioned, I do teach Intro to Logic, so you could even get in touch with me if you're interested in learning more about these topics. Since this is an audio medium, not a video one, I would recommend grabbing a pencil and paper to help visualize the concepts that we're going to be talking about. So we're going to talk about this in a few different stages. First we're going to talk about constructing an argument, and then we're going to talk about how to properly respond to an argument, and then we're going to talk about some of the, the various logical fallacies that you can encounter when engaging in philosophical discussions and argumentations. So to start us off constructing an argument, uh, let's just quickly return to the syllogism that we covered a few weeks ago on the show. As Scott Klusendorf, both mine and Clinton's boss and the president of Life Training Institute, has said the three most important words that pro-life advocates need to keep in mind is syllogism, syllogism, syllogism. Now, the pro-life syllogism is essentially, since it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being, and elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being, then elective abortion is wrong. Now, the syllogism, to put it plainly, is simply laying out or explaining the reasoning of the pro-life view. Now, pro-lifers are not arguing that abortion is wrong only if it is sought by women, because if men could get pregnant, abortion would still be wrong. And we're not arguing that it's wrong because it kills living cells. Pro-lifers are arguing that elective abortion is a moral wrong because it intentionally kills an innocent human being. In the same manner, other forms of homicide, such as killing a toddler, are wrong because they kill someone who deserves moral and legal protection, which stems from what they are, an innocent human being. Just like with abortion, abortion is wrong because it also kills someone who we argue deserves moral and legal protection. The toddler and the unborn are the same thing in kind, even though they're at different stages of development. So what the syllogism does is it lays out the logic of the pro-life view. Now the syllogism that Nathan just outlined is what we call a deductive argument. There are two different kinds of formal arguments, deductive and inductive arguments. A deductive argument is an argument that reasons to absolute certainty. Sometimes people define a deductive argument as an argument that reasons from a generality to a specific case, but this is not always true of deductive arguments. An inductive argument is an argument that leads to relative surety. You can be reasonably confident in a good inductive argument, but you can't be absolutely certain of the conclusion like you can with a deductive argument. Now, some people define inductive arguments as arguments that reason from a specific case to a generality, but this is not always true of inductive arguments. We're going to be dealing mainly with deductive arguments in this episode, and of all the deductive arguments there are, we're going to be focusing mainly on categorical arguments. Now, a statement is any sentence that has a truth value. So, God exists is a statement. Does God exist is not because it's a question. While it can be answered, the question itself does not have a truth value. A categorical statement is any statement that affirms or denies something about its subject. They actually come in six forms. There's universal affirmative, such as all dogs go to heaven, because it affirms something about all dogs. Universal negative, no dogs go to heaven. It denies something about all dogs. A particular affirmative, some dogs go to heaven, because it affirms something about some dogs, not all of them. Particular negative, such as some dogs do not go to heaven, because it denies something about some dogs, not all of them. And then singular affirmative, such as Fido will go to heaven, because it affirms something about a single instance. And singular negative, such as Fido will not go to heaven, because it denies something about a singular instance. 
For the purposes of analyzing singular statements, you treat them as universal statements. Uh, then that's because you can't subdivide a singular thing. You must treat the whole to determine if the categorical statement is true or not. Now think back to Nathan's syllogism. That syllogism is in everyday language, but we can translate it categorically. For example, premise one, all acts of intentionally killing an innocent human being are immoral. Premise two, abortion is an act of intentionally killing an innocent human being. Conclusion, abortion is immoral. Now, a syllogism is an argument with three terms, two premises, and one conclusion. In this case, our three terms are, one, acts of intentionally killing an innocent human being, two, immoral, and three, abortion. Our two premises are, all acts of intentionally killing an innocent human being are immoral, and abortion is an act of intentionally killing an innocent human being. And our conclusion is, abortion is immoral. Now, some people tend to use terms like valid and sound imprecisely in everyday language, but these terms actually have technical meanings in logic. In order to construct a good argument, you need at least four things. There are others, but I don't want to overload with information. Number one, you need clear terms. In order to have a good argument, your terms must be clearly defined. Neither your premises nor your argument can be clear or unclear. Only your terms can be clear or unclear. Number two, you need true statements. In order for your argument to be a good one, your premises must be true. Neither your terms nor your argument can be true or false. Only your premises can be true or false. Number three, your argument must be valid and sound. Now, there is a difference between validity and soundness. A valid argument is an argument in which your conclusion necessarily follows from your premises. An argument can have false premises and yet still be valid. Consider the following argument. All dogs have feathers. Fido is a dog. Therefore, Fido has feathers. This argument is logically valid because if it's true that Fido is a dog and it's true that all dogs have feathers, then it cannot be false that Fido has feathers. So an argument can have false premises and be valid. It can even have false premises and a true conclusion if you've reasoned to the conclusion poorly. But an argument cannot have true premises and a false conclusion. Your argument must also be sound. This means that it is logically valid and the premises are true. The Fido argument I just outlined is logically valid, but it is unsound because one of its premises, that all dogs have feathers, is false. An argument can be valid and unsound, but no argument can be invalid and sound. Now, neither your terms nor your premises can be valid, invalid, sound, or unsound. Only your argument can be valid, invalid, sound, or unsound. So it's important to keep these separate. Because while it's tempting to say, for example, that your argument is a true one, well, truth and falsity only, only applies to your premises, not to the argument as a whole. So returning to Nathan's syllogism again, we can see that the argument is logically valid. If it is true that all acts of intentionally killing an innocent human being are immoral, and that abortion is an act of intentionally killing an innocent human being, then it cannot be false that abortion is immoral. Is the argument sound? Well, we would argue that it is, and we have presented evidence for it on this podcast. We will also present more in the future. Yeah, and then just a caveat off of that and take this in a slightly different direction. When constructing an argument, UC Irvine philosophy and critical thinking professor Larry Wright explains in his book on the topic, which is aptly named critical thinking, uh, how to lay out the support given in an argument and how to judge the conclusions that one comes to. He explains that many arguments have what is called an implicit question, that is, they have a question they are trying to answer. In fact, actually, many formal debates will have a question that both debaters are trying to 
reason to a conclusion on. So if you watch Scott Klusendorf's debate from late last year, the question was abortion, a moral right or a moral wrong or Clinton's upcoming debate in Texas is, is there a right to die? That's the question the debaters are trying to answer. So an argument is basically an attempt to answer a question. Now, applies to a lot of arguments, not just deductive ones, but also to uh, diagnostic arguments where you are trying to solve a problem, like, say, a mystery, or you're trying to diagnose an illness. However, this can also be tied to the pro-life argument. So in a non-formal or non-academic setting, we can still lay out the premises or the support for an argument um, and see if they support the conclusion. And a good example of this, Christian apologist J. Warner Wallace, he does a really good job of this in his books, Cold Case Christianity and God's Crime Scene, where he will list the data that we have on the New Testament narrative and then help the reader reason his way to a conclusion regarding the data. So what he will do sometimes is he will lay out all the possible answers to the data that's presented and then judge how good of an explanatory power those conclusions have. So, for example, if the disciples stole the body, well, considering the data that the New Testament narrative has to support that conclusion, that will make that conclusion either stronger or weaker. So, similarly, when discussing the pro-life argument, it may be helpful to write out or list the data that you have that supports the argument. So, some data, for example, would be the substance view that uh, human beings maintain their identity even though they might go through significant physical changes throughout the course of their lifetime. Or also you have the science of embryology. Embryologists are pretty, have a pretty clear consensus that at least within the first week of the embryo's life, that embryo is a distinct living and whole human being. And so we've already done this in the syllogism form for making a deductive argument when we establish the premise that the unborn is a innocent human being and that abortion intentionally kills that innocent human being. But if you want to be more informal, you can still use the same method of mapping out your logic. So using the science of embryology and philosophy to establish that the unborn is a valuable innocent human being and that abortion kills them. Now when we talk about how to properly respond to an argument, this section is going to be the shortest because it, it's actually not very difficult to to understand or to uh, expound. Basically, in order to respond to an argument, you must respond to it directly. If you don't, you're committing some kind of fallacy. Additionally, you can't simply refute one or both of the premises and then argue that the conclusion is wrong. A conclusion can still be correct, even if the premises used to reach it are false. So, for example, suppose someone is arguing for the pro-life position with the following argument. Abortion choice advocates are bad at math, therefore abortion is wrong. Well, that's clearly a terrible argument. You can argue that the argument is invalid because the conclusion doesn't necessarily follow from its premises. Nothing about abortion choice advocates being bad at math would affect the morality of abortion. And you can also prove the premise wrong by showing that most abortion choice advocates are not bad at math. You've shown the argument to be a bad one, but that doesn't refute the conclusion. Abortion may be immoral for another reason. You have to present an argument for your own conclusion to show that abortion is not, in fact, immoral. So now we can move on to a few logical fallacies. There, there are two main umbrellas that logical fallacies fall under. You have your formal logical fallacies and your informal logical fallacies. 
formal logical fallacies have to do with the form of the argument itself. There are a few different rules that a proper syllogism must follow to be valid, and if it breaks any of these rules, it results in a formal logical fallacy. Now, because, again, I don't, I don't want to overload with information, I didn't talk about most of the rules, but for one example, as I said, a syllogism must contain three terms. So if your argument contains four terms, it commits the fallacy of four terms, the uh, name being, uh, being apt. Now, uh, informal logical fallacies are difficult to categorize because it seems that every logician has a different way to do it, and the number of informal fallacies is also different depending on which book you pick up. There are literally hundreds of fallacies depending on who you read. We'll cover just a few of the more common fallacies. It's also the case that an argument may commit more than one fallacy. Now, regarding informal logical fallacies, there are, uh, informal logical fallacies being one of the main overarching umbrella terms for the fallacies, there are actually several different lesser categories under this bigger category, which informal logical fallacies can be separated by. And so the first of these that we're going to talk about are fallacies of distraction, which are also sometimes called fallacies of relevance. And they are called this because they try to divert attention away from the matter at hand. So they literally try to distract you from the conclusion in order to try to argue for a different one. One of these is the ad hominem fallacy. And ad hominem is just a Latin term meaning to the man. This is a fallacious appeal to something about the person's character rather than responding to his argument. For example, arguing that pro-life people just want to control women's bodies, or that pro-life people are just religious zealots, are ad hominem fallacies, because even if those things were true about pro-life people, which for the most part they're not, it wouldn't mean that their arguments are wrong. Yeah, similarly, under the ad hominem category, I could give two examples real quick. One of the ones, probably the most popular, is, oh, well, you're a man, what gives you the right to talk about abortion? Well, being a man is not really relevant to whether abortion is right or wrong. Because for one, if the argument works, then any woman who is considering abortion would essentially be, be engaging in a moral wrong. Regardless of the gender of the actor, it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being, which is what abortion does. So even if men and women could get, both get pregnant, abortion is wrong regardless of which gender it is. Also, as Frank Beckwith points out, and I'm going to keep it family-friendly here, arguments don't have genders. People do. So saying that, well, you're a man or you're a white man or you're an old white man, I don't fall into the old category, but the issue is what does that have to do with whether or not my argument has been constructed correctly? After all, maybe I am a straight old white man who votes for Republicans as a gun-toting conservative who – is all these things that somebody has listed, it doesn't mean that I am somehow inherently incapable of reasoning to the correct conclusion on this issue. And it also does not mean that I have reasoned incorrectly on this issue. They'd have to show that my reasoning and that my argument does not work or that my reasoning was right. flawed somehow and that I came to the wrong conclusion. So really just listing off all these things, I might be all those things. I'm not, but I might. It doesn't mean I came to the wrong conclusion. Or another example, um, and this one commits multiple fallacies, and we'll talk about it more in a minute. There's a meme that is constantly going around on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, and it's a picture. It shows a bunch of Middle Eastern children in a boat on, in the middle of the ocean, and it says, if you think fertilized eggs are people but refugee children are not, you need to stop pretending your concerns are religious. Well, aside from completely misrepresenting the pro-life view, 
and that we are not saying that refugee children are not people. We're saying, in the pro-life view, we're saying that those refugee children have been those same people that they are from every stage of their existence. So if it's wrong to kill them now, it was wrong to kill them back then. But also, it seems to assume that pro-life people are all just religious zealots who hate refugee children and want to control women's bodies. Well, even if that's the case, it doesn't mean abortion is morally right. Abortion could still be a moral wrong, even if every single pro-life person is some sort of zealot. What the pro-choicer needs to do is use the science of embryology to show that those same refugee children were not innocent human beings during pregnancy, but somehow later became a human being during the course of their lifetime. And they'd have to use philosophy to show that there was some relevant difference between the human beings they are now and the humans they were back then that would have justified killing them then but not now. That's where the argument lies, not over the character of the pro-lifer. Now, another fallacy of distraction is ad misericordiam. And actually, probably most of these fall the fallacies of distraction have Latin terms, but ad misericordiam is just a Latin term meaning appeal to pity. Now, while pity can certainly be appropriate and can lead to you taking action, appealing to pity to justify a conclusion is fallacious. These usually take the form of circumstances. For example, a woman who was poor needs abortion to survive, or a woman might be so psychologically distraught that she might take her own life if she is denied access to abortion. Again, even if these things are true, they do not refute the pro-life argument. If a woman can't afford a child, she can gift the child to a loving family through adoption. And if a woman might take her own life, she needs to be referred to a therapist not to kill her own child because of her psychological state. Another one of these fallacies is the straw man fallacy. And this is one of the most common logical fallacies. It's committed when you attack an argument similar to the one being used and easier to defeat than the one being used. You're not actually responding to your interlocutor's argument, but a similar and weaker one that is easier to defeat. An example might be the a, a very colorful uh, example from abortion choice advocates would be if abortion is murder, then masturbation is genocide. And that's a very common straw man argument. But the thing is that sperm cells are human, but they are not human beings. Pro-life people don't argue that anything that is human has natural human rights, only that human beings have natural human rights. Something else to keep in mind, another, or excuse me, another example of a common straw man argument, and this came up actually during Scott Klusendorf's debate with Nadine Strawson, was she said, she goes, well, why are you saying that a fertilized egg has the same rights as a full-grown woman? Well, that does commit a straw man argument in a way. By the way, it's not true that it's simply a fertilized egg. The zygote in question is distinct living and whole, though very immature right. human being. But at the same time, this is also a straw man argument because abortions do not happen at the single cell stage. It's really impossible to cause an abortion at the single cell stage what happens, abortions will happen weeks or even months after conception. So really, at the point when abortions are happening, Dr. Warren Hearn talks about doing abortions at the fourth and fifth week of pregnancy, when the thing that is in question, the unborn, is a multicellular organism that is very complex and is not at the zygote stage. It is far later in pregnancy. So the pro-choice advocate has to argue that that is not the human being and not simply argue against the zygote. Another example, I was having a conversation with a coworker about this recently 
we were talking about abortion, and then I made reference to the scientific textbooks, like Keith Moore's book, The Developing Human. And my coworker pointed out, he said, well, I was doing some research on this also, and some people say that it's not a human being until 14 days into the pregnancy. And there are some arguments about that, but we'll just set those aside for now. Even if that's the case, that has no relevance to elective abortion, whether through RU486 or through a surgical means, because that is not the stage when abortions are performed. They're performed many weeks or months later. And so the non-humanity or non-human being status of the unborn has to be established at every stage of pregnancy when somebody thinks abortion is permissible, not just at the single cell or eight or 10 cell stage. Now, a second type of fallacy is the fallacy of ambiguity. And sometimes these are called fallacies of language. And these are so-called because one or more of the terms in your argument are ambiguous, vague, or otherwise unclear. One type of fallacy of ambiguity is equivocation. And this is the informal version of the fallacy of four terms. Equivocation is committed when you are using one term in different ways. In order for your argument to be sound, your terms must be clear and used the same way each time in which it appears. A common equivocation is the argument that no one knows when life begins. This is because life can be used in many different ways. If you're arguing when life begins biologically, then this statement is simply false. Scientists have determined when life begins. It begins at fertilization. If you're arguing when personhood begins, then this statement may or may not be true. Science can't determine this because personhood is a philosophical question, not a scientific one. But many people have put forth arguments about when personhood begins and they need to be engaged with. Another common equivocation is women have a right to choose. And it's an equivocation because whether or not you have a right to choose depends on the thing being chosen. So it doesn't follow that for example, just because a woman has a right to choose who she's going to marry, that she also has a right to choose to have an abortion, especially if the pro-life argument is correct, that abortion kills, that abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being, so abortion is immoral. Another fallacy is the fallacy of composition. The fallacy of composition is committed when you assume that something that is true of one of its parts is true of the whole. A common fallacy of composition is committed when an abortion choice person argues that the unborn are not valuable because skin cells are not valuable. It is true that my skin cells are not valuable, but it doesn't follow that the unborn, which is made up of cells, are also not valuable. Of course, this argument is even more absurd when you consider that this kind of rationalization for abortion rationalizes killing any human at any stage of development. And then the last type of fallacy we're going to look at are fallacies of presumption. And these are so-called because they fail to provide adequate support for their conclusion. One type of fallacy of presumption is the no true Scotsman fallacy. This fallacy is committed when you try to argue that someone is not a real X by pointing out some accidental rather than necessary property for being X. One such argument kind of kind of alludes back to the one that uh, that Nathan mentioned under the the ad hominem fallacy, uh, one that I commonly hear. I, I don't know if I've seen the meme that Nathan was talking about, but one argument I commonly hear is that unless you support welfare, illegal immigration, and socialized medicine, you're not really pro-life. This, of course, is false because to be pro-life, one must oppose the killing of unborn children. We are not pro-life based on whether or not we support your preferred social programs. And so 
as the meme Nathan was talking about, you know, the same goes for trying to argue that someone is not pro-life if they don't support taking in refugees, because it, it's kind of a complex discussion about whether or not we should be taking in refugees. And so there's just a lot of um, a lot of nuances that we have to come to a conclusion on. Something else I'm going to jump in on real quick regarding the no true mm -hmm. Scotsman fallacy and the ad hominem fallacy is a lot of times people like to bring this up especially talking about the refugee children. And it's a bit ironic because the debate over refugee children is actually not about who we're going to kill. It's about who we're going to and welfare to. So, for example, but a lot of pro-lifers would be supporting refugee children if there were other groups of people that were trying to kill those refugee children, just like there are groups of people trying to kill the unborn. So, and actually, it's really ironic this accusation is thrown at a lot of pro-life conservatives or pro-life Republicans uh, when they say they go, oh, well, you don't support refugee children um, like you support the unborn. Well, actually, we do. Just a lot of the pro-life Republicans are supporting the military action that's taken against ISIS, who is trying to kill those refugee children. So it's a really ironic uh, statement to make. In fact, actually, the inconsistency argument could be turned around and say, well, you don't support the unborn but you want us to give complete government support to born children. Why not the unborn? Why can we kill the unborn but not the born children? So it's really, it's really an absurd argument, and it has nothing to do with the morality of abortion. And the final fallacy that we're going to look at this morning is the fallacy of begging the question. Now, this fallacy is committed when you're assuming what you're trying to prove. This can take a couple of different forms. Either your conclusion appears somewhere in your premises, or you argue in a circle. Either way, you are failing to properly support your conclusion. An example of begging the question by arguing in a circle is in arguing that viability is what grants a human being rights. Why is it viability that matters? Because that's when the fetus can survive outside the womb. But why does the ability to, to survive outside the womb matter? Because that's when it's viable. An example of begging the question when your conclusion appears in your premises is when the abortion choice advocate argues for some situation. You are assuming abortion is moral rather than arguing for it when you appeal to a situation. So an argument for poverty runs something like this. Premise 1. Some women are too poor to afford a child. Premise 2. All women who are too poor to afford a child need abortion. Conclusion. Some women need abortion. So that's a pretty explicit case in which the conclusion that some women need abortion appears in one of your premises, the second premise, that all women who are too poor to afford a child need abortion. So that's an example of begging the question. We, and so this is another case in which these kinds of arguments commit more than one fallacy. Something else, I had a incident, I was doing the Genocide Awareness Project out at Cal State San Marcos about a year ago, and somebody came up, and it was a slightly humorous example of this, of begging the question and arguing in a circle. Somebody came up and said, well, those abortion images you're showing are fake. So I asked him, I said, well, if they're fake, then what do real abortion pictures look like? He looked at the picture and said, well, they don't look like that. Well, duh, they don't look like that. Then what do they look like? And so this conclusion is sometimes asserted. It's like, well... My position is true because your position is false. Well, you need to establish that it, my position is false first. It's really an absurd argument, but it, it does pay to keep an eye out for this because it can be made a lot more subtly, especially when the emotional stakes go up, such as in a conversation about abortion and poverty or an abortion and 
the other hard cases that we talked about on previous episodes. This begging the question fallacy can be slipped in almost without notice. So we talked today about constructing an argument, how to properly respond to an argument, and some of the various logical fallacies you may encounter, either in constructing your own argument or when you are responding to an argument by by an abortion choice person that they might be making a fallacy against you. So I'd like to thank you again for listening, and I'd like to thank Nathan for joining me to talk about this uh, this topic. If you appreciate the information that we've been um, that we've been presenting here today, then we would ask that you share it around social media, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you frequent, and please rate and review us on our Facebook page and on iTunes. Now, coming up here in just a few short weeks, I'm going to be debating A Right to Die with Matt Dillahunty, an atheist internet personality, on Friday, September 8th at the Bible and Beer Consortium in Dallas, Texas, at 6 o'clock p.m. local time. Now, this is a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do for the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com, which is the Life Training Institute website, and click on Donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. Donations are also tax-deductible. Now next week we're going to be talking we're going to be sort of following up the discussion that we had today and we're going to talk about how to engage intellectually versus how to engage emotionally. So on behalf of Nathan, I would like to thank you again for listening and we'll see you next time. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.